Damar Hamlin, man, it's a really personal thing for me, uh, being a Pittsburgher. And, and that young man being a Pittsburgher, I've known that guy probably since he was about 12. Um, just got a lot of respect and love for him as a human being, um, his commitment to the pursuit of his uh, goals and dreams of doing what it is he's doing right now, which is playing in the NFL. And to watch him make personal decisions and, and, and make that a realization, um, it's just an honor to get to know young people like that. That is Pittsburgh head coach Mike Tomlin talking about Demar Hamlin who remains in critical condition at University of Cincinnati Medical Center. And we remain hopeful that he will uh, recover fully from that uh, the scary moment last night. And earlier in the show, we were joined by Dr. Adam Black, who was kind enough to take time out of his busy work schedule day to talk to us. Dr. Black is the Director of Emergency Medicine for Ascension St. Mary's Hospital and St. Elizabeth Medical Center here in Chicago. And Lawrence Holmes and I got to talk to him about what happened last night and what a prognosis may be. I was watching it live. I had just gotten home from a trip, and uh, we had it on. um, And uh, the first replay was enough for me to be pretty convinced as to what happened. Was it Commodio uh, Cordis? Yes, Commodio Cordis. Um, it, it's a, a stunned myocardium, and it is basically a perfect strike to the heart at a very specific part of the QRS cycle, the QRS complex. It, it, it takes really a lot of bad luck because it has to be a blow right between the second and fourth ribs on the left, and it's usually high velocity. And even then, 98% of the time, you're not going to be in this part of the repolarization complex of your heart. It's only 2% of the time that you're actually in that particular segment of the heartbeat and at risk for something like this happening. We hear about it a lot in youth sports, primarily because of how the the smaller, lighter body would just be more susceptible to an impact that could damage like this, no? That's exactly right. The average age for something like this is about 15 years old, and baseball is number one because of that thinner chest wall. It's just about the age where kids are able to hit a baseball 40 miles an hour or so or faster Um, And it takes a decent amount of energy, but as you know, it's velocity squared. So it's the small, quick projectile like a baseball or hockey puck as opposed to the, you know, just amount of impact from from sheer mass like occurs in football. Considering that that the medical staff that was on site seemed to do an incredible job, I'd love to know what you thought was important. Like if something like that happens on a diamond around the country, what are the important things that people should, should look to do? In theory, if you've got a good look at it, and rather than a wide differential of I don't know what happened, if you saw a strike to the chest and you were really thinking commodio cortis, the only thing that matters is how quickly you defibrillate them. Every survival curve starts falling off by the minute as far as how quickly you restore circulation. 
CPR is a good bridge, but even the best CPR restores like 30% of the circulation and extends your survival time. But it's all and only about delivering a shock. I was impressed by the speed at which the athletic trainers and then the doctors worked, primarily because usually when you see an NFL player lying there, the first thought is a neurological trauma. And you think, all right, well, can, are the extremities moving? But the fact that they immediately, that there was airway breathing circulation, real first aid going on, I, I, was, I was actually very impressed that it got that serious, that they recognized the seriousness that quickly. Well, and the, the most impressive thing is, of course, they didn't probably see the impact, and they certainly didn't see replays of the impact. It was easy for me to know that if, if I had seen that replay and they said go, I would go running out there not worried about moving the neck or protecting the C-spine or doing anything else. It would be cut off the pads right now and shock this guy. They couldn't behave like that because everything was in their differential. They went running out there knowing that there was a man down. They didn't see that it was the classic get up, take one step, and drop, and that he had been popped right perfectly on the left side of the sternum. They didn't see any of that. So they had to consider a lot more. As soon as they checked for a pulse, that determines everything. He was pulseless when they got to him. So they had to do CPR. They had to cut off the pads. And then the life-saving move is to defibrillate him, which is how they got his circulation back before they left the field. Typically, what would be the rehabilitation and treatment for the next week or so for a patient like this? Um, The next additional 24 hours or so is really the whole game. He, in theory, was an otherwise very healthy supreme athlete, I should say is, Um, and I, I... I I don't want to get into specifics of survival rate and chances simply out of respect for the family. Um, But the the goal right now is to see was there or was there not an insult to the brain during this lack of circulation time. And it will be decided by slowly weaning him off the ventilator and seeing how well he tries to breathe on his own. It's not an all or none thing, but that will be a huge determining factor as to what type of recovery we're talking about. When they say that he's sedated, is the presumption that he's in, is, or is procedure to use a medically induced coma to lower the metabolic burden during recovery? That, that is a, a, a great thought um, and is potentially a factor. But to be honest, it's a good sign that there was enough motion or movement or agitation that he needed sedation if he had passed or or was not having brain activity they wouldn't need any sedation Mm. so the fact that they had to sedate him is a good sign because anyone with any sort of function left unsedated would be trying to remove the tube that was dr adam black Earlier today on the Bernstein and Holmes show, he's the director of emergency medicine for Ascension St. Mary's Hospital and St. Elizabeth Medical Center in Chicago. And yes, he sounds like me because he's my first cousin and our mothers are identical twins. So we grew up together and kind of sound alike. So if there are some people who are commenting about that, then why does he sound like you? Well, he comes by that honestly. So he was in your context. 
Yes, yes, indeed. And while while I just pretend to be a doctor on the radio, he's an actual doctor, so has uh, slightly more credibility when it comes to these things, and that's why we put him on. So it was all really very helpful stuff, and we're all we're all just hopeful because that was that was it was tough to go through last night, and and I don't know if you do you watch Bulls games? Does that not does that feel like work or no? <laughs> Isn't that for everybody? Doesn't that feel like right. work for everybody? <laughs> Lately, Sit yeah. through a Bulls game. I like watching the Bulls, uh, but I don't do a lot of that during the football season. Okay. I usually will check in. This is part of the problem too. Is I, I check in usually about mid January when the when the Bears season ends and the Bulls season has already ended by that point most right. times. I just wonder because like, and also when you leave Hallis Hall on like a busy newsy like a Wednesday or something like that, what do you listen to? I listen to the opposite of what I've just gone through, which is like a frenzy of work and things like what, that. Like classical music? Like or? jazz or something okay. like that or something instrumental, just something. I I commute like 45 minutes each way to Hell's Hall, so I try my best to make that peaceful time as much mm-hmm. as possible, which is not easy to do on the interstates. Um, but, yeah, usually some, or something, if not that, then something uh, totally different in the sense of like there's a lot of interesting stuff on NPR. Mm-hmm. Where they'll be just they'll be interviewing some guy who helps uh, you know spiders who have had a leg amputated in New Mexico or something mm-hmm. like that. I'd be like, all right, I, I'd, I'd like to hear what this guy's up to. I used to do the same. I, I used to, I used to just find something to to like let all of the football stuff just like flush out of my ears for a while. Yeah, I need something. Just, I need something different. Robert Quinn was like this. Robert Quinn would said that like his wife really liked football, so his wife always had football on in the house but that he would not go home and intentionally watch Monday night or Thursday night football. Peanut Tillman. Like he's had enough. He's, he does it all day, every day. It's enough. Peanut Tillman, not a football fan. <laughs> I, I always love that. It's like, yeah, I don't, I don't really watch. Football. I'm really not that interested. Like, but you're a football player. It's like, yes, it's my job. I got, I got in the car once in Hallis Hall recently. I think, I think this is this year where I got in and I turned on NPR and I picked it up mid-question in some interview they were doing with an author. And they're like, so how, how can you tell if the elephant intentionally trampled the victim? And I'm like, all right, this sounds, this sounds interesting. Well, it okay. leaves a note. I'd like to hear where this goes. <laughs> when we come back, uh, we're going to talk White Sox. Pedro Grifol was talking. He had stuff to say. And we are going to hear from him. And you're wondering, what the hell is going on? Where are these weird-ass voices? Well... I'm Dan Bernstein, uh, double shifting, actually triple shifting, that is the second of the three. And he is Jason Leisure. We are in for Parkins and Spiegel. Sock stuff when we come back on the score. Turn your microphone on, Dr. Radio.